0: Good morning. We're glad that you're here to worship with us at Rivermont today. And let me invite you to turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 as we consider the Advent theme of joy today. The first two Sundays of Advent, we looked at hope where we lay hold of the truth that Jesus reigns now and into eternity. And that truth of Jesus' reign can crash into the present and change the way we live our lives today. It brings us hope. And last week, we looked for love. We saw the call to love one another as we have been loved by the Lord Jesus. We're called to lay aside our personal agenda in order to pursue what is good and loving for one another, even when it costs us something at times. Today, we turn to joy. And joy is one of those things that is a bit challenging to nail down, isn't it? It feels squishy. It's difficult to define what is it and how does it work? Well, the Apostle Paul speaks of joy today in our passage coming from a place where we may not think to look for it. It comes from the body of Christ, from the church. It comes from you. Let's look at Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. The Apostle Paul wrote, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by the power of Your Spirit You would open our eyes and open our hearts to receive what You have for us today in Your Word. Enable us to exalt the Lord Jesus as we reflect on who He is for us. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, this third Sunday of Advent is oriented around the theme of joy. We always light the pink candle, the gaudet candle, the rejoice candle on the third Sunday of Advent. And yet this was not a week in which I really wanted to think much about joy, to be honest. I had a hard week. I heard some very difficult news within my extended family. And the last thing on my mind was a sermon on joy. But you know the way the Lord works, don't you? That's precisely where my heart needed to go this week. Because when we may not feel joyful is when the Lord begins to press deeper into our hearts the reality of joy, the reality of what He's done for us. But what is it after all? What is joy? Sometimes we confuse it with happiness or pleasure, simply good feelings that make us feel warm and fuzzy, especially at Christmas time. There is some overlap between joy and happiness, but the way the Bible seems to describe and talk about joy is a little bit different from that. Joy is really not something that's circumstantial. It's not like when something good happens and we feel happy about it, or when something bad happens, we lose joy. That's something else altogether. Joy isn't getting the present that we want. Joy isn't uh, elation when our team wins or feeling good about doing something helpful for another person, as good as that is. But instead, joy or the lack of joy is quite often tied to what we set our hearts on, to the thing for which we live. If we set our hearts on success and we live for it, then we define ourselves by it. And if we don't have success and we become discontent, we become hopeless. When we set our hearts on managing our circumstances, making everything turn out just exactly right, if we live for handling that problem, then we're going to feel hopeless and we will feel joyless when we come to the end of our strength and our abilities. But what Paul sets his heart on and that which produces joy in his life is a gospel awareness. It's an awareness of the Lord Jesus Christ alive and at work among his people. That's what fills up Paul's joy. But you know the circumstances in which he wrote this letter. He was in prison. He was in prison, most likely in Rome, and he had been sick. His companions had been sick and they had been near to death. Paul was struggling with anxiety. He had been beaten so many times and now he was facing a death sentence. And we wouldn't think that that's the context, that's the environment for writing an effusive letter about joy. But that's exactly what he does. Because it's not tied up with external circumstances that either produces joy or withholds joy in our lives. But rather, joy comes when we have glimpses of gospel awareness. Reality of seeing Jesus alive and it worked in and among His people. That's what produced joy in Paul's life. And I suggest to you today, that's what will really produce joy in your life too. How do I mean that? Look at verse 27 of chapter 1. Just a few verses before our text Paul calls the church to a manner of living, he says, is worthy of the gospel. And by that, he meant that they are to stand together on the truth of Jesus crucified and raised again over against opposition they had received from the outside. There were opponents who had come into their fellowship from outside and tried to destroy their faith wreck their their faith life and and steal the true gospel from them. And Paul called on them to live worthy of the gospel by opposing those errors from the outside. It cost them something. In verse 29, they were suffering for what they for standing for the truth. And Paul was joyful, he says, because they weren't carried off by opposition from the outside. That was a beginning of joy in his life. But he went on to say something more in our passage today. In chapter 2, verse 1, Paul wrote, if, or perhaps better, since you have these things, these these hope of the gospel we're going to examine in a moment, then verse 2, he says, complete my joy. Or if you have these things, bring to fullness my joy. How? By being of the same mind. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Even while he was a prisoner, Paul suggested to this church that his joy could be filled up. His joy could be brimming over when not only they stood against opposition from the outside, but also when internal strife was laid aside. Paul says, if harmony and unity reigns among you, then my joy will be complete. When your unity is not only standing against outside opposition, but your unity also stands against internal opposition, strife and argument and self-interest, when you stand together against those things that are within our hearts and within our lives, then my joy will be to overflowing, Paul says. When he sees Jesus alive and at work in His body, among the church, among the people of God, that's what Paul says brings to completion his joy. It brings to fullness. It, it brims over. Why would that bring him joy? Well, the reason is because unity doesn't come naturally to us. We are all by nature selfish. We are pursuing self-interest. We grasp for self-advancement. We refuse humility. When we are challenged and rebuked, we trumpet our own defenses. We use our positions to get rather than as an opportunity to give. We're selfish by nature. But when we don't do that, when we're not selfish, when we lay aside our own selfish pursuits in order to benefit someone else, then it reveals that Jesus is alive and at work among his people. And that's why that kind of unity brings joy to Paul. Unity is connected to joy because we can't spin unity up on our own. We can't produce it by our own work. Unity is a gift of God. And friends, it is a fragile, fragile gift. And yet when unity is present, when the people of God not only stand for the truth against the world that challenges us, but when we stand together and lay aside our preferences, our desires, our self-interest... It reveals that Jesus is at work. And it only can be because Jesus is at work. If you're looking for signs of the Lord Jesus this Advent season, we celebrate the first coming of Jesus. We are expecting the return of Jesus. If you're looking for signs that Jesus is alive while you're waiting, I encourage you, look around. Look around you. For Jesus alive in the church, in the body of Christ. Jesus alive enabling us to lay aside our self-interest, lay aside our self-advancement in order to bless one another. When you see unity, you will find joy because it reveals God at work. Let me turn that around and say it from the other end. One theologian, Thomas Manton, once wrote, Divisions in the church breed atheism in the world divisions in the church breed atheism in the world and the reason for that is where there is no unity where there are no people laying down their lives as the lord jesus has done for us when we refuse to do that and yet talk about the love of christ the world is left to assume there must be no reality to what they profess there must be no god in their alive in their midst And yet Jesus desires something better for us. He desires joy for us, the joy of unity, the joy of seeing Him at work, producing something beautiful among us as the people of God. Friends, whatever circumstances you're facing today, whether it's a broken relationship, a broken life, a broken body, whether you've lost your job, whatever you're struggling with, when you are looking for some sign, some sense that that God is alive and at work, then you should be able to look here. Look to His people, how we dwell together in unity. Because when things are falling apart in the world, there is a possibility for joy when we see Jesus at work among His people. When we see Jesus alive in His body, then we are brought to joy. How does Paul lay this out for us in this text? Quickly, first we see we have joy when we see God alive in us. That's those first four verses that we read in chapter 4, those promises of the gospel. Those beginning phrases shouldn't be understood as if, as if it's in doubt, but rather since. If, as indeed is the case, Paul says, you have encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love. He's not just calling us to do good, but He's pointing us to walk in line with the supernatural realities that are at work among us right now. The things that we do indeed have and those things that we do lay hold of, those, those ideas that we are a common identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, it produces of changed life in us. And when we see that changed life, we're brought to joy. specifically does He call us to? First, we see a life loved by Christ. He says, since you have encouragement in Christ, comfort from His love. Paul uses that little phrase, in Christ, like he does numerous times in his letters. And it always points us to the fact that our lives are hidden in Jesus. We are so united to Jesus' life and death and resurrection that our sin is laid upon Him and His righteousness is given to us. We are united to Jesus. We are hidden in Jesus. And because we are hidden in Jesus, God is pleased with us. We have the smile of God upon us because we are hidden in Christ and that gives us encouragement. And friends, with the smile of God already given to you, what do you have left to prove to anybody else? if you already have the smile and the favor and the profound love of Christ given to you because you are hidden in Him, then what do you have to prove to another person before you feel worthy or significant or valued? The King of Heaven values you. You are hidden in Christ. He also says that we taste of His love. And that tasting of His love sustained the Philippians when they were suffering, when they were undergoing trial. How can the comfort of Jesus' love sustain us in trial? Well, no matter what else is going on, you are loved by Christ. No matter what is falling apart in your life, you are loved by Christ. No matter if you have someone you've been giving love, be it a spouse or a child or a friend, and you continue to pour out love upon love upon love, and it doesn't come back, and you're left wondering, will they ever love me? Even in those moments, Christ's love will never fail. Your friend's love might. Your spouse's love might. Your children's love might fail. But Christ's love will never fail. And we need to hear that at Christmas time, don't we? When we gather together as families and we get on each other's nerves. When we're passive aggressive with each other. When we say silly things and and we leave us in fighting and in alienation. We need to remember, even from those closest to us, if we're alienated from them, Christ's love never fails. And His love for us comforts us because not only does that love never fail, but it is a knowing love. He knows the places that we want to keep hidden in our hearts. He knows the secrets that we're ashamed to tell. He knows the ways that we've hurt one another. He knows all of these things and He loves us even still. He loves us enough to pursue sinners like us so that He would go to the cross that you and I might live. He loved us enough to take our place to die the death that we deserve in judgment for our sin, for our secrets, for our alienation, for the ways that we hurt one another. Jesus took all of that judgment upon Himself. How could that knowing love not console us? The one who knows us Best, loves us the most. We have joy in that we are found out. Our secrets are laid bare, and yet we're loved even still. How could that not bring us love? Such a gospel reality, a gospel awareness of Jesus alive within us gives us joy. We're known and loved. But we also, Paul says, have joy when we know that we have. Life participating in the Spirit. He says, Since you have participation in the Spirit, that's a a wonderful word of the indwelling activity of the Spirit of God within our lives. He's the one who does the work of reminding us of Jesus' love, He's the one who does the work of empowering us to serve. And friends, our ability to serve one another in the body of Christ and produce joy is carried out day by day by believing that our lives are hidden in Christ. Tasting of that experiential reality of His love that knows us inside and out and in the daily partnership of the Spirit of God reminding us, empowering us. We see it in one another, don't we? What happens in you when you see one of your fellow members here at rivermont a person who's connected to jesus when you see them battling incredibly challenging circumstances and yet even in the midst of trial they radiate love and joy what happens in you doesn't it lead you to joy doesn't it affect your heart too i've experienced it from you as i've sat in your living rooms i've sat in hospital rooms with some of you i've sat in my study as you've poured out your hearts and your lives that are broken, and time after time, when you pour out your pain and even still lay hold of the love of Christ, of the reality of His Spirit within you, of the comfort of knowing His love, even though the circumstances of your lives are awful, whenever you pour out that that pain in your heart, and yet you do so with joy in your life, my heart leaps within me. My heart leaps because I feel joy when I see you experiencing the love of Christ. You see, friends, whenever we hope, whenever we feel joy, when there's no circumstantial reason for it, it is evidence of Jesus alive and at work in your heart and in your life. We're waiting. We're waiting in Advent season. We are looking forward to Jesus returning. We're battling against the challenges in our lives. And while you wait... Look for Jesus alive in you and in one another. And it's going to encourage you as it encourages me to believe in His grace when I see you laying hold of His grace. When I see His rich forgiveness changing you. It strengthens me to to seek to love better when I see the way you are trying to love one another. And joy, friends, is motivated by the reality of the Gospel of Jesus alive within us changing us from the inside out. But you have to let people in to be able to see it. You're going to have to be willing to share those broken places of your life, the vulnerable places of your life, if anyone else is going to be encouraged by your persevering in faith. Friends, whenever you do, whenever you let someone in, you offer to them joy. Joy at seeing Jesus at work. But not only do we experience joy when we see God alive in us, but also we see joy when God is alive through us. We see in verses 6 through 11 this famous hymn retelling the life of Jesus that Christ didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be used for his own advantage. He used his position, he used his authority in the sense of giving rather than getting. And Paul is, is elaborating on all of these points. Of the life of Jesus, verse 5, so that we would have the same mind. We would have the same purpose. We would have the same life of Christ exhibited in us as His people and through us that the world would experience joy. Because when they look at the body of Christ, when they look at the church, they see Jesus is alive and well. Well, how do we see Jesus spending His life In the flesh. Verse 7 He made himself nothing, or he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. Now, when Paul says Jesus emptied himself, it's not in the sense of laying aside being God. Jesus did not become any less God or, or remove any of his attributes, but rather he emptied himself by adding something. He emptied himself by adding to his life the form of a slave. He limited his life. He subjected himself. The one for whom the universe was created took the place of one in society who has no rights whatsoever. Paul, we see in verse 7, says he took the position of a servant. The word is his bond servant. It's the word for a slave. Jesus took the form of one who had no right to himself. No privileges of, him, of His own, but a life completely spent serving another person. The life of Christ that we're called to conform, be conformed unto is one of others' centeredness. And when we are concerned about other people rather than our own happiness first, people see Jesus in us and Jesus through us. Paul went in further in verse 8. He said, "...Jesus humbled Himself..." "...and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross." It's amazing, friends, to think as we sing of this sweet baby Jesus, this, this innocent little one on Christmas morn. It's interesting for us to remember that He was born to die. He was born to die the death that we should have died. When we sing of the manger, we sing of a manger that's resting in the shadow of the cross. The cross for you and for me. And for friends, that road to unity, that road to joy in this season among the body of Christ is by verse 5, having that same mind of Christ. By being willing to take the place of a servant. The place of even a slave. Giving up our rights. Giving up our honor. Giving up our privileges. Giving up our prestige. All for the sake of building up someone else. see, having the mind of Christ is when we lay aside our self-advancement and instead use all that we are and all that we have to benefit someone else. Having that mind of Christ is no longer being consumed with a passion for my own happiness, but instead for yours. And whenever we live that way, it isn't because it's so natural to us. Whenever we live that way and give up our rights, give up our privileges, give up our prestige for bless someone else, it has to be because Jesus is at work. Because He's the only one who can transform our lives to live like that. And it produces joy when I see you give up honor to bless someone else. Because I think to myself, Jesus is alive in that brother or that sister. If we let this truth get into our hearts, it's going to tinker with how we view lots of things. We remember that unity and joy and the model of the life of Christ is of taking the form of a servant. It's going to transform our marriages, won't it? For if we think first, not about me and my rights and my happiness, but instead, how might I serve my spouse in love? It'll change the way we relate to one another in our marriages, won't it? Don't change the way that we live in the church. What if a ministry is not being conducted, or it's not emphasizing what I prefer? Is it possible that you may be being called to take the place of a servant? Or as today, when we are dedicating a building, what if it's not designed exactly like I prefer? What if it doesn't have all of the things in it that I would like to see it have? Maybe this is an opportunity to take the place of a servant and love as you've been loved. Friends, the surefire way to kill a divisive spirit in life is to put to death the reckless pursuit of my own rights and instead attempt to secure blessing for someone else. The path to joy is found in climbing down the ladder from our thrones To take the place of a servant and spend our lives for one another. That is where true joy is found. Have you seen it? Have you seen it here? Have you seen it in your family? Where do you see a person giving up their preference for someone else's good? Whenever you see it, take note. Because in that place, you're seeing Christ at work. Because it takes incredible strength to allow yourself to be a servant. It takes a strong person to entrust your desired future to God and lay it aside in order to serve someone else. Perhaps, like me, you're distressed at seeing a me first world and even more distressed at looking within and finding a me first heart. Well, if you are like me, then look for the places where some people who belong to Jesus are saying me second. Look closely. Because whenever someone lives as me second, you are witnessing God at work through them. That's the reason Paul connects unity and joy. For whenever we lay aside our rights, our preferences, our desires, it reveals Jesus alive and at work. I wonder if you can see him here in this church today. Here we are in Advent season Waiting to see Jesus return, waiting for when he returns in the clouds. And yet, friends, don't not only wait for the future, but in this Advent season, look around to see Jesus here in his body, living him, living out his life through you to bless one another and to bless the world. I read this week an interesting story of an orchestral conductor. This particular man was asked, What's the most difficult instrument to play in your orchestra? His, his answer was really interesting to me. He said the most difficult instrument to play in my orchestra is second violin. Second violin. He said first violin, it's easy to play, it's easy to find people who want to play it and play first violin exceptionally well. But rarer, he said... Is the one who will play second violin with enthusiasm. For all of their talent is being used to highlight the melody that the other is playing. And yet, without the second violin, there's no such thing as harmony. Isn't that true of the people of God, too? If we use our gifts and we use our positions and use our privilege to serve and bless one another, there's a beautiful harmony among us and the music sounds like the life of Jesus alive and at work in this place. We could say that whenever we serve one another, a beautiful unity is set on display and it's only a unity that Jesus could produce from a lot of self-interested sinners like us. You're in Advent. Look for Jesus to return, yes. But look for Jesus alive here, too. Who wants to demonstrate joy to the world with us this season? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that You took such pity upon us in our sin that You sent Your only Son to live for us and die for us and be raised again for us. But not only that, You promise us the Spirit. The Spirit that will enable us to remember the incredible love that Jesus has for us upon the cross. The incredible power that we have of His life within us by Your Spirit. And we ask, Lord, that whenever any of us are discouraged this Advent season, when we're simply waiting for something to change, we pray, Lord Jesus, that You would give us eyes to see all that You're doing right here and right now. Fill up our hearts and fill up our lives with joy when we see you at work building us into a body, a body of living stones. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.